Kyrie Reeves needs to rebound from what was a terrible season. Does everyone like basketball? With the second pick in the 1999 NBA draft, the Vancouver Grizzlies select Steve Francis from the University of Maryland. This is, with the second pick, Steve Francis, the joyously niche Vancouver Grizzlies basketball podcast. I'm Jeremy Allingham. This is episode four of season three, and today we're taking a deep dive into the pleasure craft that was the late 90s Utah Jazz. It's Stockton and Malone taking on our beloved Vancouver Grizzlies. I'm here with my co-host, a man who doesn't particularly care for the Edmonds Skytrain Station or Gateway or Columbia or any of them, for that matter, is Justin McElroy. How you doing, Justin? You know, 20,000 people wanted to know just how bad Edmonds was, uh, Jeremy. They have a passion for the Skytrain Station, so Metro <laughs> Vancouver. Somehow, I'm doing good. Uh, it's not always the most joyous time of uh, picking up a late 90s NBA game and seeing a 82 to 78 score that is grit and grind with uh, no real statecraft to it but as a kid there was something about a Utah Jazz game of knowing you were facing two Hall of Famers of knowing that your team had to be at their very best to have any chance of winning especially when your team was the Vancouver Grizzlies and on this day on December 28th, 1997, the Vancouver Grizzlies uh, show up at General Motors Place, 10 and 18. They're in a pretty good place so far in this season three. They're on pace for 30 wins, which when you're Vancouver is called progress. They've started off good, but they know they're going to be in tight when they're facing this Jazz team, who are, by their standards, struggling a little bit at this point at just 17 and 11. But to be clear, this is one where the Grizzlies are always the heavy underdog, as the announcers point out they've never beaten the jazz at this point in their franchise history never ever they're 0 and 9 against the jazz in franchise history to this point um and the jazz have been much busier over this christmas stretch of the season they are playing a back-to-back on december 28th and their fourth game in seven nights which compared to the grizzlies they've played only two games in their previous seven nights, perhaps some foreshadowing to a well-rested squad taking this Jazz team head-on. And of course, this Jazz team, as we know, goes on to the NBA Finals later this season. On to the starting lineups. We've got Antoine Carr in the middle for the Utah Jazz, Carl Malone, Adam Keefe, Jeff Hornacek, and John Stockton at point guard. You know, maybe it's because of watching The Last Dance uh, a couple years ago, but all those names just etched in my mind. I can see how they play. I can see how the team gels together. It's not like anyone past Jeff Hornacek on the Jazz was good per se, and we watched this in this game, but they tend not to make a lot of uh, mistakes, and uh, we'll go into just how smooth they are as a unit. For the Grizzlies, it is uh, the big fella, big country in the middle, Sharif uh, at power forward or small forward Antonio Daniels at point Otis Thorpe at power forward but we see a wrinkle now it's Sam Mack at the shooting guard position in which is a revolving door slot for the Grizz this year we'll get into that a little bit later but this is at this point of the season their default starting lineup but we don't really want to talk about the Grizzlies as much in terms of the setup for this game as we do the Jazz because there's a couple things one thing we really liked and one thing we didn't like about them let's start with the thing 
thing that we didn't, and that's their uniforms. Oh, my gosh. And so, I mean, I should just lay it out on the line right now and be transparent. I despise the Utah Jazz. Like, I remember LeBron <laughs> said it just a couple of years ago. Like, we all hated the Jazz. And that was true of me. I despise them. And these jerseys, you know, the throwbacks way back to the 80s, you know, you can you can give those a pass because they've got some real kind of uh, grit and energy to them. But these Jazz jerseys with that royal purple and the light blue um, mountain caps and those kind of action letters across the front. And I swear the letters, like even the piping on the letters looks a little bit greenish on the back. Um, these things are just brutal to look at. And, uh, you know, it's not like their playing style is that much more beautiful than uh, these horrendous jerseys. But I'll let you tell our fair listeners about something quite nice that comes with watching a late 90s Utah Jazz game. I mean, the point about the 80s jerseys is that they had, like, a note, musical note, right? Like, yes, it actually yes, connected yes. with the d name, whereas these things just come from the 1990s over-the-top graphic design is my passion form of it's way too much and I want to get the hell away from it. The thing I don't want to get the hell away from is the announcer for the Jazz. And it's fun for us doing these games because we're getting bootleg copies from European tape traders and it tends to be from the away team's feed all the time. So we get to hear these announcers that growing up we did not get to hear because they were regional. Uh, but we got to be exposed for the first time in my life to Hot Rod Hundley, the famed announcer for the Utah Jazz for decades, who was a former player, but was shockingly good as a homespun broadcaster, a real radio guy at the end of the day, who fills every second with action. It's not like he's letting what's on court tell the story when it comes to these simulcasts on TV, but he is fun to listen to he is engaging he doesn't screw up and he just has a way that makes you want to watch any game whether you're rooting for the jazz or against them and you know he's a radio guy because just like chick hearn he says for those watching on tv you can see the replay here which is interesting um a smooth delivery a great pace a great energy um, and has some just like fun turns of phrase. And, you know, he calls Jeff Hornacek Horny. There's Horny up top for three. Eight seconds for a shot. Horny to the corner. Put up a 20-footer. Airball trailer. Horny for three. No. Back to Isley. <laughs> Which took me a solid six to eight minutes to get over the fact that every time Hornacek touched the ball, it was Horny into the post. Horny dribbles around the perimeter. I'm like, okay, man. Uh, he also calls Blue Edwards Theodore throughout the game because of course blue started his his career with the utah jazz with with hundley calling those games and almost you know most important well one thing i didn't get any gans oklahoma action from uh, hot rod but he's not really a homer that's the best part about this as someone watching all these years later is that he just seems like uh, a regular play-by-play -play guy who wants to watch this game and he gets not quite equally, but almost equally as excited for a big play by the Vancouver Grizzlies as he does for the Utah Jazz. And he doesn't kind of just assume that automatic position of being a homer and complaining about certain referees calls or saying this team's got to play better or, you know, all that hackneyed stuff. He's kind of right down the middle, leaning a little bit to the Jazz as you will. But I really loved uh, I really loved the way he called this game. It's almost like a national presentation in that there's the passion for just the big moments and trying to carry the wave with the crowd, uh, though obviously he knows the Jazz a little bit better. First quarter of action, 
It is uh, not all Jazz to begin with, but we've got tons of efficient shots by the Jazz. The Grizz uh, are keeping up somewhat, but overall, this is a case after the first quarter where the Grizzlies are a little bit down. Of course, we only know that from reading the recap because this is one of those times where our tape traders didn't manage to get the entire game <laughs> recorded, and it joins for us 10 minutes into the first. But what we do see is everything with the Jazz is very deliberate and to the point, but we also see Reef already doing really well in this game. From from what we read in the box score, Sharif's starting off very nicely with uh, ten points, three rebounds, and a steal in the opening stanza here. And I just gotta, I just gotta be honest once again. Skipping that first eight to ten minutes of the first quarter, not that bad. Kind of improved my life, improved my mood. At first, I kind of panicked and thought I got the wrong file, and then you're like, no, 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 it was cut off, and I'm like. This isn't so bad. I'm straight into the action of the second quarter. I don't have to bang my head against the wall watching long twos. This is nice. Thank you. It's 22 to 14 for the Jazz at one point, but then uh, Big Country makes a jump shot from 17 feet away, and then Reef yeah, gets one layup, then gets a steal, drives the court, makes another layup. Daniels hits a brick at the buzzer, but we end the quarter with the Grizzlies just down by two, 22 to 20. They're in it at the start, and that leads us to our first quarter segment. NBA time machine. Danger, danger, danger. So we're firing up the NBA time machine once more to debate, to discuss whether the players on the opposing team to the Grizzlies um, would hack it in the modern day National Basketball Association. Um, a couple of these players we will be talking about much more at length later in the game, but we can start out by saying, Justin, John Stockton. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think anyone who's record holder in in steals and could shoot from all over the court is someone that's going to play in any era. The thing about the Jazz, and this is, you know, for the thing that's noticeable for a lot of their players is the lack of speed, right? And in this era, Stockton is going to be eaten up a little bit more. That because he just does not have the pop to go over guys that are now by guard standard 6'5", 6'6", 6'7", a lot of the time. That being said, I think if you drop him in today's era and he has to put a premium on beefing up his fitness a little bit, his speed, he's someone that easily slots in as a starting point guard no matter what because he is just so smart on the court, on both sides of the court, and the fact that the game has been extended his three ball action is more valuable now than it was when he was playing yeah I don't want to step on my John Stockton stuff that's coming up but I will say uh, resoundingly yes and my comp which isn't really spot on but I think I would just lay it out as a CP3 thing like a Chris Paul mm. control controls the game has it has the game kind of wrapped around his finger uh, Carl Malone the mailman all of our favorites, Carl Malone. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, th that's one where th the game has changed, right? And he's not someone that you're going to go to in the post and just shoot 20 shots between, you know, 3 and 15 feet in every single game. He's still an NBA player. He's still, you know, a key part of your rotation, maybe even, a, you know, a solid starter. But he's definitely in this game, you know, watching this at the end. Again, it's that lack of real pop. I think that uh, the guys that are a little bit
little bit bigger now, 6'9", 6'10", 6'11". Don't eat him up, but it makes it where he gets way less buckets in uh, this era. I think, it, you know, I couldn't find uh, a comparison. Disclosure, I ran out of time today. But I think he profiles as a solid number two or three guy on a playoff team. Oh, I mean, I, I mean, I think he's still an all-star. Like, I can't. I hate Carl Malone. I hate him now. <laughs> I hated him then. But, like, the guy is so strong and has a supreme touch. And... He, he, I mean, he got to the free throw line nine times a game for his entire career. Like he wouldn't, he would continue to do that in modern day NBA. I couldn't really come up with a comp because I was thinking like uh, Anthony Davis, but he's not as good defensively and he's better offensively than AD. Then I was thinking Carl Anthony Towns, but then I just started laughing because Carl Anthony Towns is going to change the game. Um, I honestly, I think Carl Malone's just Carl Malone. Like you know, maybe a maybe an Al, maybe Al Horford, right? Um, like oh, a little way more, he's way more talented than Al Horford, though I think. Um, but yeah, that that body for sure, that that kind of thickness, broad broad shoulders, good rebounder. Okay, moving on, Brian Russell. <laughs> I think Brian Russell it becomes a dime a dozen player in uh, this era because everyone is lanky as him today. He did not stick out, you know. Looking at his advanced stats, he was never particularly, you know. Great on the defensive end. I think he gets drafted, he gets minutes, uh, but in no way does he become, you know, he's a ninth, tenth man that just plays for four or five seasons, I think, unless things really pop at the end. Like, the tools are there. He's a toolsy guy, but I just don't see, like, there's now 200 Brian Russells. And. Well, yeah, so I was going to say, like, there's a whole breed of player that has evolved like kind of from evolutionary Brian Russell, like mm -hmm. Brian Russell's kind of like the cell in the Petri dish and all the guys who kind of shoot threes from the corner and are amazing defenders are the guys that kind of uh, resulted from that. I'm actually going to say like with a gun to my head, I don't think Brian Russell can play in today's NBA. Really? I don't think he's explosive enough. I don't think he's fast enough. Um, if I had to stretch, if you had to say, well, you know, make a comp, honestly, it's like Tony Snell mm. or like maybe like Royce O'Neal. Um, I just, I don't know. I don't, I just, when I watch him out there, if Stockton sets him up for a five, five to 10 footer, he's making it, but he can't make anything on his own. Um, yeah. I don't know. I just, I, I don't see it. I don't think it, it translates, uh, you know, 25 plus years down the line. Let's keep going. Jeff Hornacek. And this is one where we did disagreed because I went, you know, immediately. Any, it's sort of like Stockton, first of all. In the, I'm going to presume in if Jeff Hornacek with his size and athleticism, but shot comes into the college ranks five years ago. He is working on getting his speed to play in the NBA. And you look at his shot, you know, in this season that we're looking at for him, the 1997-98 season, he shoots 44% from beyond the arc, but they only have him do two shots a game for three. He becomes a Kyle Korver sort of player. Um, uh, is he going to be a starter? Not all the time, certainly not for good teams, but you can slot him in. He's smart enough. He's good on both ends of the ball that I think he adapts because at the end of the day, that stroke is there and he is just never out of place. 
Yeah, you know, it's funny. Since our production meeting, I actually came around a bit once I saw that 44% number on almost no volume. Like, to hit that many threes when you're only taking two or so a game is pretty crazy. Um, I think I came up with the comp uh, of he'd have to play like J.J. Redick. He'd have to play like Mm. Luke Kennard. Um, Kind of sharpshooters, dribble handoffs, always running off the ball. Like, in his... You know, in his career, he was more of a ball handler, more of a facilitator, um, treated as a kind of like a regular shooting guard. He would have to really make up for his lack of athleticism in today's game, but he could do it by doing that off the ball cuts, coming around, taking the handoff and just super quick release stuff. I mean, I don't think people who can make 44 percent of three point shots don't at least get a look. And you look at, like, he was averaging, you know, one to two steals his entire career as well. Like, there's room for him. Is it 35 minutes a game with an NBA Finals contender? Maybe not. Uh, And finally, the easiest pick on this, the man in the middle, Greg (laughs) Ostertag. Jeremy, do you want to make any defense or any attempt of saying that Greg Ostertag could make it in this NBA? My only defense whatsoever is that he's seven foot two and just a big fucking dude. Like he's just huge. And we know that people are just obsessed with that size and he could go out there and rip rebounds, but the complete and utter lack of offensive game, I think precludes him from the modern NBA. You know, maybe like in this era, how you develop a no hands prospect like that is a little bit different than in the 90s where they could say, yeah, just play defense and and make blocks and plug up the middle is workable enough. Not so much now. And use five fouls. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a place to use f- five fouls. Second quarter action. We have uh, the Grizzlies at first doing pretty well in this quarter. We've got uh, Reeves attempting a spin move finger roll at one point, which was uh, wild. But then we get him to giving a nice backdoor pass to George Lynch. Reeves with the ball. Reeves holds back underneath to Lynch. He's there scoring. Beautiful play. Lynch gets back to back hoops. The Grizzlies take a 26-24 lead. They're on a 12-2 run early on in this second quarter, and they're looking pretty sprightly. Yeah, the Grizzlies look good. Big Country has a couple uh, good little forays, a little uh, up fake and a scoop to score, and he even passes from the top of the key for an assist. And we have a Tony Massenberg sighting. Massenberg's out there. He brings great energy. Uh, didn't Couldn't score the ball in this one, but he did play 12 minutes, picked up four rebounds, including two offensive rebounds. And uh, we even get a, a Lee Mayberry three. Big Country Reeves, Jazz up 34-30. Mayberry fires for three, and it's good! The rare Lee Mayberry splash from beyond the arc, which uh, is always delightful for a a Vancouver Grizzlies fan to see. And and frankly, shocking to actually see him shoot the ball instead of dribble it to nowhere for six six seconds before doing it past to Reef in the post. But eventually, the Grizzlies must fall to gravity. And part of this is because the Jazz start showing up. And specifically, John Stockton starts showing up. And, you know, we've been hinting at talking about this, but man, oh man, when he is on, he is something special to watch. 
Yeah, I mean, and so like again, I, I will completely admit that I was hoping, I was hoping I could come into this podcast and be like, you know what, guys? Actually, John Stockton kind of sucks, and Carl Malone, he also kind of sucks, and it's just not possible whatsoever. So the way they um, rotate John Stockton is very interesting. So he he plays the first seven or eight minutes, then he sits a full ten. So he plays seven, sits ten and then plays another seven to, to close the half. And so when you see the Jazz playing without John Stockton, it's pretty ugly. Like, it's very stilted. It's just running through Malone in the post. It's some Howard Isley stuff. It's Shandon Anderson stuff. It's, it's quite ugly to watch. And then everything changes when John Stockton comes in the game. And, I mean, again, he looks, he looks kind of goofy out there with his floppy hair and... Um, he, and it's, it's funny, you know, he doesn't look like the quintessential athlete with the quickness and the explosiveness, but the way he controls the game, this game is on a yo-yo. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's slithering around. He's looking for different angles. He plays the game at exactly the speed at which he would like it to be played. And all of a sudden the Utah jazz go from clanking 16 to 20 footers to making layups, making dunks getting wide open looks all over the court. And it is unspectacular in many ways. You know, he'll have flashes of brilliance where it'll be like a one-handed uh, one-handed pass across court or, you know, a little dime dropped in the pocket. But really, mostly, it's just the way he controls the game and gets people wide open looks. And that is enough to put the Jazz on this massive 12-0 run. When we're watching all of these mid-late 90s games, it is, we've remarked a lot on how just sort of slow and staid these offenses are, where so much of it is just into the post again and again, or an iso play somewhere. And certainly the Jazz, you know, they're known for pick and roll, stalking and blown again and again. But that's sort of reductive. When you watch a game like this and you see the extra passes being made everywhere and uh, just trying to continue to space the court as well as they do, you know, it's certainly not the San Antonio Spurs of uh, the mid-2010s, but it's that prototype of this is just an offense that is thinking about so much more when Stockton is on the court of what they can do do to get those open looks than 90% of the teams that we are watching. Absolutely. And as a result, the Jazz have this 12-0 run. They win the quarter 24-13, and we head into the half 46-33. The Grizzlies put up 33 in the first half. And uh, just, a, <laughs> just a note, uh, both teams combined attempted, not made, attempted five three-point field goals so this is uh this is quintessential and we know that the jazz like to grind that 90s style and boy oh boy were they ever and the grizzlies were obliging i would just want to say you know they only five points only five shots from beyond the arc as you said the grizzlies still 14 for 42 from Ooh. the field in that quarter and in that half and so much of it and you look pain there and you should and so much of it is that this offense is either 
give the ball to Reef in the post and see if he can do something, or if he's in transition, let him go down. But otherwise, there is just not a lot of movement and action. The stuff that we saw in the first game of the year with Brian Hill as coach and trying to bring in energy seems to have dissipated here in this quarter. Daniels is not doing a heck of a lot to advance things around. It is just sort of grim action. That's right. And, you know, we do see a lot of action from the bench in this uh, in this second quarter. We see nine minutes from Mayberry, eight from George Lynch, six from Tony Massenburg, and 950 from Blue Edwards. And let's just say they were three for eight. Or no, yeah, three for eight. Uh, not chugging along very nicely there. Three turnovers as well amongst them. And Reef goes from 10 points in the first quarter to zero points on zero for one shooting. So lots of signals as to why they lost that quarter by 11. Uh, it is a common story for the Grizzlies at this point in the franchise. And speaking of common stories, our second quarter halftime segment is here. What did Stu do now? And Jeremy, every time we do this segment, we try and find a new transaction that the Grizzlies have done, a trade, something to say, look, Stu did an explicit thing here and we can break down just why it made the Vancouver Grizzlies bad. There's only been a month since the last game that we've uh, talked about. They haven't made any trades at this time. They haven't extended any players at this time. But we had not one, but two trade demands come forward and they are big players for the Grizz. Yeah. I mean, in a very short period of time, we've got, you know, we've, we've known it's coming for a long time. The Otis Thorpe uh, trade request sh uh, followed shortly thereafter by an Anthony Peeler trade request, which then is somehow maybe recanted, but not. And there's a meeting with Stu and there's a meeting with big country and reef. And it just sounds like, an absolute debacle behind the scenes with this team. And, you know, the interesting thing is it's Stu's job to support these young players with veterans in the locker room who know how to play, who know how to be NBA professionals. And yet the people who he brings in to do that, or perhaps I'm not sure if he's aware of that, that that's part of his job, but the people who are brought in who should be playing those roles are like, get me the hell out of here. And he's left to deal with it. And he's left to deal with it in the with it feuding in the public, which reduces his leverage to try and get assets for them in the future. And when you look at these demands, look, the Otis Thorpe one, Thorpe right away, as soon as he was straight, it was like, I don't really want to be here, but I'll put in an effort. He only sort of did for a month and a half. But in that one, you can say, well, look, that was an attitude thing from Otis Thorpe from the start, which you can critique. In Peeler's case, though, we didn't hear a lot of him being a malcontent in his first season. What ended up happening is that he said, look, you've brought in Sam Mack. You've brought in Chris Robinson. You have Daniels that you're committing to playing 30 minutes a game at the starting point guard position. I am not getting the minutes that you guaranteed me going in. I'm having to fight for them way more, and I don't want to be here if that's the case. And bluntly, I think he has a good point to make because at the end of the day, Anthony Peeler was a rotation player for a playoff team in the Lakers before he came to the Grizzlies. He was a rotation player after he left the Grizzlies for the Minnesota Timberwolves, so that was successful. And uh, that's the sort of player that you want to give minutes to 
regardless of what sort of team you're at. And instead, the Grizzlies created this situation where they had five different shooting cards and it just froze out the one player that the Grizzlies brought in along with George Lynch, where it was good asset management in terms of how they brought them in for a couple cheap second rounders because the Lakers needed to get cap space to get Shaq on board. And now you're making him miserable by not playing him so Blue Edwards can get 15 to 20 minutes a game. I don't get it. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. And this is a guy who, let's just remind ourselves, had 15 points, four assists, and three rebounds a game on in uh, 32 minutes. And he played 72 games for the Grizzlies the year before. He had that 40-point effort. Um, I think it was against the Nets. He scored over 30 twice, over 2014 times. Like, it's not like this is <laughs> this guy's some scrub who's like, you know, he's, you know, he's way past his prime and, you know, he's not going to contribute anything like just the year before. I mean, we watched games wherein he was the only player with that energy. And I don't know if his games may be taking a downturn, but it sure does resonate with me when you say, hey, this is my job. And you brought in five other guys who can do my job. And it's funny because in one of the news uh, newspaper articles, he's talking to the reporters and he's like, just imagine you get assigned to a story and there's four or five other reporters just following <laughs> you around doing that same story. And I'm like, oh, that's actually pretty, uh, pretty apt. That's a pretty apt point to make. And that, that resonated with me. So I definitely see this as uh as a bit of a fuck up by Stu for sure. And you look at the advanced stats, even in this season where Peeler ends up only playing eight games for the Grizzlies, he has the best permanent win shares of any of the guards. He was even as playing not as great as he did the previous season, an upgrade over what was going in there. And because of the way this played out in a messy fashion, it meant that the Grizz could not get as much for him as they wanted. Another case of Stu Jackson having a dime and turning it into a nickel. And uh, just just to uh, just for foreshadowing, little uh, storytelling mechanism here. Uh, Anthony Peeler will be traded on February eighteenth, nineteen ninety eight. And uh, should we even say who he goes out the door in exchange for? Let's just say it's the Minnesota Timberwolves, and it involves drinking Heinekens. And on that note, on to the third quarter, and we continue to get something that I am calling the Antonio Daniels experience. In this, the third season for the Vancouver Grizzlies, pinning their hopes on the point guard position on the number four overall pick, giving a rookie starter minutes. And sometimes it looks really nice, like when he buries an 18-foot jump shot to start this third quarter. Daniels wide left behind the screen. He'll pull up, take one for 20. That's good. Antonio Daniels. Only his second bucket. But other times, it is just incredibly frustrating. Yeah, I mean, if you look at his box score for the third quarter, six points, three assists, and a rebound on two of six shooting and a couple of uh, makes from the free throw line. But uh, also in my notes, I have AD stupid running J slash flat 20 footers. He's still got that swag. He's still got that energy, but there's a lot of inefficiency, a lot of bad decision-making, um, pretty much all the things that John Stockton is not, Antonio Daniels is. Loose with the basketball, not great decision-making, not great shot decision-making, should be distributing the ball more, but doesn't quite have the acumen to 
kind of triage, right? To decide, okay, here's when I need to get the ball to reef. Here's when, here's when I can pick my spot and get to the hole. Um, Stockton makes all the right decisions or almost all the right decisions and AD does not. And that proves to be quite a massive difference in the outcome of this game. You know, and it's again, nine-year-old me liked Antonio Daniels. He thought he was cool and flashy and got the short end of the stick. And now 36-year-old Justin is watching Antonio Daniels and going, well, he can't really penetrate and he can't really shoot. And he gives up way too much space on defense. So what are we doing here? But if you're at the Vancouver Grizzlies, you're playing him plenty of minutes because your only other alternative is Lee Mayberry. Uh, but, but that's neither here nor hey, there. Hey, but we've got, we, we've got five shooting guards, so that's good. <laughs> and one of those shooting guards, Sam Mack, is shooting pretty well in this third quarter. He makes a three-pointer immediately after Malone does a turnover. He makes a two-pointer uh, th then. At the end of the quarter, he gets a dunk. To Antonio Daniels, gets by Isley. He'll power the middle. Three on one. Underneath the back. Slam dunk. Sam Mack. Mack with eight points in this second, uh, third quarter, and he's got ten in the game. Things are looking well for Sam Mack, and things are looking better for the Grizzlies in this quarter. They're not giving up nearly as much to the Jazz, but the Jazz are keeping their 10-point lead or so, and a lot of that is because a certain Hall of Famer has woken up for them. Yeah, Carl Malone really gets it going here. Um, my plan to trash him was actually going pretty well up until the first half. And then this third quarter, he really comes alive. Uh, Stockton only plays six of the six of the 12 minutes and Carl Malone plays all 12 of the minutes in the third quarter. He has 10 points, two boards, two steals, an assist. And he even has that classic um it's it's off of a steal on defense and he runs the entire floor. You forget he has actually a decent handle and he does the classic Malone dunk where he puts the left hand behind his head and throws it down. And then he actually got fouled on the play and he ends up picking up a technical because, you know, dour asshole Carl Malone. But, you know, <laughs> actually I felt for him in that situation because he was fouled. But I will say, you know, after saying five nice things about Carl Malone, does anyone remember, and you will soon because I'm going to go through it, Carl Malone's free throw routine? I want to leave it with my 90s basketball fans here. Go through your head. Can you remember the Carl Malone free throw routine? It is absolutely yes. ridiculous and obnoxious and makes Giannis look like he's got a nice Kurt, uh, nice short little uh, routine. So... Malone I mean, the funny thing is, you're, you were looking at Malone. I was looking at Stockton's free throw ritual where he would rub the side of his face in, in a weird way. Three no, times. that's Hornacek. That's yeah, Hornacek. no, that's Hornacek. Yeah, so I'm so, sorry. To, so I was focusing on that. You're focusing on the other jazz with the weird routine. Break it down. Okay. Yeah, let's break it down. This will be super entertaining because it was terrible to watch. Six dribbles, two slow spins in his left hand, then he crouches and just kind of goes up and down in a mini squat while talking to himself. I timed it. It's about 11 to 12 seconds per routine. And this is a guy who shot nine per game for his career. Thank the Lord. He didn't actually get that many attempts in this game. But immediately I was like, this is insane. Please stop it right now. Shoot the ball, man. Absolutely crazy. 
He makes a couple free throws in this quarter as well. Again, it is back and forth, back and forth, but when you're beginning a quarter down 10 points, that really doesn't matter all too much. The quarter ends with Reef muscling it in for a layup with 22 seconds uh, left. Daniels misses a circus layup at the buzzer. The Jazz are up 67 to 58. Yes, the Grizzlies have 58 points after three quarters. It is grim, but they're still in the game at this point. Nine points you can come back from. But before we get to that, let's do our third quarter segment. So one thing before we get to the third quarter segment, I got to throw in there because two years ago, when we were watching Big Country in the first couple months, even three, four months of the season, and even last year at the beginning of the season, this guy at certain points would be hunched over, breathing for dear life, desperately heaving. Big Country plays every minute of the first three quarters. I am not shitting you. 12, 12, 12, 36 minutes, Big Country Reeves holding it down and actually playing pretty darn well through the first three quarters. That is a milestone, Justin. I feel like we need some sort of like siren celebration music. Country can do it. He's running, baby. And his cardio was so good after this season as well, right? No, I mean, like, he is still the big fella where is his defensive positioning all the time great? No. Does he only have two or three moves in the post that he goes to regularly? Yes. But is he putting in an efficient, you know, 15.8 rebound not really taking anything too much away, especially when you're up against Antoine Carr, Adam Keith, Greg Ostertag. Yes. So to a nice little game for country here, though you have to laugh again. The Grizz have four shooting guards. They only have one center at this point, and that's why they're giving him 36 minutes. Uh, he Spoiler alert, he does not somehow play all 48 minutes in this game, hilariously. Maybe ran out of gas a little bit, but before we get to that fourth quarter, we're going to talk... I know a grizzly. Jeremy, we have lots of players that start their tenure for Vancouver in this season. And we've talked about some of them already in depth. We have Antonio Daniels. We have Otis Thorpe. We have Tony Massenburg. And we'll talk about Tony Massenburg a lot over the final four seasons of the Vancouver Grizzlies. But there's one player that starts for them a lot this year. The master of the three, Sam Mack. Sam Mack, okay, so Sam Mack, the smooth shooting six foot seven small forward out of three different colleges. He went to Iowa State, then Tyler Junior College in Tyler, Texas, then the University of Houston. He would end up going undrafted in the 1992 draft, and he started his pro career in the United States Basketball League, the USBL, for the Connecticut Skyhawks. He was then signed by the San Antonio Spurs. Sam Mack was twice in the top 20 in the NBA in three-point percentage. In 98-99, the season after the one we're covering right now, he was eighth in the NBA in three-point field goals made with a resounding 87. <laughs> Interesting thing about Sam Mack, a highly and deeply committed hooper. Sam Mack played professional basketball until the age of 43, including a stint with the Halifax Rainmen of the National Basketball League of Canada. Yes, the Nas National Basketball League of Canada, Halifax, Nova Scotia. Um, another little tidbit, tidbit, 
on Sam. Uh, his son, Sebastian Mack, has just committed to playing for UCLA in the Pac-12 next year. Um, Sam Mack was acquired by the Vancouver Grizzlies in October 1997 from Houston for a second-round pick in 2000 that would become Jake Voskel. The one and only. He was then traded one and only Jake Voskel, believe he won a national title with UConn. Um, he was then traded back to the Houston Rockets in March of 1999 for Roderick Rhodes. Why were Stu's only trades with the Houston Rockets? We'll never know, or maybe we could. Uh, all told, Sam Mack played 76 games for the Vancouver Grizzlies. He averaged 11 points, two rebounds, two assists, almost a steal per game. He did that in 26 minutes a game. Shot 40% from three, really good. He also shot 40% from two, really bad. So stroking it from beyond the arc, off the dribble, inside the arc, not so much. That's our Sam Mack. You're forgetting the most important fact is that he was an all-star this season, Jeremy. In the three-point competition, the most important part of the skills competition. And let me tell you, I was jazzed as a kid that any Vancouver Grizzly could make any part of the All-Star Weekend festivities. You better believe that I watched that three-point competition. Did Mac win? No, of course. Vancouver Grizzlies players never win anything. However, he was a guy that brought a flash of excitement to the team in an era where three-pointers were really rare. He shucked a lot of them, and he shucked them at a really high percentage at the end of the day for that uh, season the next season where he only plays half the season with the Grizz and then goes back to the Rockets you know it's funny he finishes sixth in offensive rating with 115.8 per possession when he's <laughs> on the court somehow he also finishes third in turnover percentage giving up 7.5 percent of the time he was a man of extremes a man who ultimately was not that great of a player otherwise he would have done more for other teams after he left Vancouver and again contributed to Anthony Peeler, a better player leaving. So his legacy overall for the Grizzlies, I think, is mixed at best. But sometimes it's just nice to cheer the long ball, and Sam was able to do that for Vancouver. Absolutely. Pour one out for Sam Mack. Uh, he's not dead, but uh, he definitely <laughs> he definitely hooped to a, to a ripe old age, which I just I, I love it when I see guys just keep going and going and going. That is amazing. On to the fourth quarter. And the fourth quarter at the start goes a lot like the third quarter where the Grizzlies are keeping pace, but that's not quite enough when you're down to to begin with. Uh, We do get a Lee Mayberry long bomb, his second one in the game. It's Christmas in December because it is a December game, but the Jazz are keeping pace. Malone makes a nice uh, up and under layup. With 10 minutes left in the fourth quarter, he already has a 24-11 stat line, but he sits down with 10 minutes left, and that gives the Grizzlies little bit of an opening yeah and this you know the history of Sharif Abdurrahim would tell you that the fourth quarter is traditionally where he disappears becomes a ghost and kind of leaves his team wanting but this fourth quarter for Sharif is absolutely money right side to the baseline open there for a jump shot and hitting it Abdurrahim Abdurrahim backs in down goes the mailman he'll put it up turn in and score Right corner, Abdur Raheem for three. Yes! Abdur Raheem. He has 27 points. The 11 here in the fourth quarter. He plays all 12 minutes. He scores 15 points, three boards, three assists, a steal, a block, no turnovers, even hits a three. We'll get to that later. But the interesting thing here, and we'd be remiss if we don't bring up 
the Utah Jazz's legendary coach, Jerry Sloan. And even though Sharif is eating them up, the Jazz are actually progressively making life a bit tougher for Sharif throughout this game because what happens is they realize he's going to be the fulcrum of everything. It's going to, you know, this game is going to uh, be decided by how well Sharif Abdurrahim plays. And so in the first half, they're doubling him as soon as he gets the ball. Even if it's 20, 22 feet from the basket, they're running someone at him. But what Sloan does in the second half, and particularly this fourth quarter, is they're waiting for Sharif to make a move and then they're throwing the kitchen sink at him. Sometimes they're throwing two, three guys at him. They're basically saying, we don't care. Antonio Daniels, whatever. Sam Mack, whatever. Big country, he's gassed. Pete Chilcutt plays all 12 minutes. You know, he makes a couple buckets. That's good, including at three. But Jerry Sloan's like, we're selling out to stop Sharif and we'll see what happens. So that was really interesting to see. But again, Sharif deals really well with the pressure and he comes up with a massive fourth quarter. Well, and normally the strategy of a triple team reef and make other members of the Vancouver Grizzlies shoot shots would be a smart one for coaches. But a weird thing happens in this quarter. The Grizzlies are making everything. Chilcutt makes a three-pointer. Mayberry, we talked about the three-pointer early on. Chilcutt then makes an 18-foot jump shot off of a reef assist. We get an Antonio Daniels two-point dunk. Stockton goes left to right to the hoop. Take it away. Down goes Stockton. Court Daniels driving, hanging, slammed up. Antonio Daniels. He has 10 points. They're moving it up in Vancouver. Jazz up 81 79. The Grizzlies get it to within two points with three minutes left, and the fans go alive. And again, Hot Rod Hundley is loving how the Vancouver is somehow in this game, despite him being the Jazz announcer. Yeah, and you mentioned that Antonio Daniels dunk. We should talk about that one because that was quite something. Uh, one of the rare missteps from John Stockton on this play, he drives into the lane and goes up for a shot, and Pete Chilcutt blocks him. Chili with the block, and it goes on a fast break. Antonio Daniels ends up with the ball. He's high flying, goes to the rim, throws it down. But uh-oh, he does that thing where all your weight is going forward and your hand slips off the rim. And I swear, whenever this happens, but even watching this game 20 whatever years, 25 years later, I went <gasps> like, it's just, it's so scary when you see these dudes flop off the rim from 10 feet in the air. And you even like, I stopped at slow-mo and everyone, including the jazz are like, oh my God, is he okay? Thankfully he pops up. He's got those young muscles, young bones. But uh, that was an electrifying play from Pete Chilcutt and then from AD. And uh, the Utah Jazz respond as Stockton snakes through the lane and gets a great and one to bring it back to a four-point lead. It then becomes five. But the Grizzlies are not going away. Antonio Daniels makes a jump shot. Blue Edwards makes a long two. Reef does a great job. 38 seconds uh, left of getting in there to, as well. The crowd is going crazy. Hot Rod shouting, what a comeback. Things are looking like this is coming down to the wire yeah i mean we should point out reef got the and one there with 37 seconds left and he missed the free throw um and then so stockton gets a drive and an easy layup stockton scores 10 points in the fourth quarter like he just takes over and like like i said decides well now it's time for me to score so i'm going to score so now sharif gets the ball in the post and there's no double and so it's kind of confusing at first but then he makes his play 
and they stay with single coverage, Carl Malone's all over him playing super tough D, and it looks like Sharif should maybe pass away. They go to the money man, Abdul Rawi. He's down low left. Pick out about Carl Malone. He backs him in. Double pump, jump shot. Yes! Abdul Rawi. 31 points. Timeout, Jazz. Six seconds left. What a player. Abdul Rawi. Cool as a cucumber. Out of California. Muscles. An eight-foot hook over top of Carl Malone to put the Grizzlies up 88-87 with 6.2 seconds left on the clock. And so now it is Utah Jazz time. There is six seconds, as you say, left in the game. If you know anything about the Utah Jazz in the 1990s, you know that at the top of the list of things that might happen is a Carl Malone pick on John Stockton action. The Utah Jazz come out. It is John Stockton with the ball on a Carl Malone pick. Jeremy, are the Vancouver Grizzlies ready for this? Well, I was going to say, if you're a Vancouver Grizzlies fan, you know the Grizzlies are going to be in the perfect spot defensively. They're going to lock it down. <laughs> I can't even finish the can't even finish the sentence. Russell to Stockton. Stockton behind Malone. Stockton, he's open. 20-footer. He got it. He got it. Two seconds left in the game. John Stockton. John they won three on the shot. They won three. Okay, so Brian Russell takes the ball out uh, on the side, and Stockton comes to get the ball. He goes to his left off of a Carl Malone pick. He does a little hesitation, and he walks into what is a completely clean about 20-footer. And we know that Carl Malone, he lays really tough picks. And sometimes you can't really blame people for not getting around them. That is not the case in this situation. Antonio Daniels flashes his rookie naivete, his rookie inexperience, absolutely dies on this screen. Like kind of almost seems like he goes into Carl Malone like he wants a hug. Like doesn't fight around it, just gets swallowed up on this screen leaving John Stockton with so much room. And so the help here is supposed to come from Pete Chilcutt. So knowing, you know, knowing that there's six seconds left on the clock, by this time there's got to be four or even less than four seconds left, Pete Chilcutt should be absolutely closing out as hard as he can to help on John Stockton, who's been hot the entire fourth quarter. What does Pete Chilcutt do? Completely backs off the shooter, he gives John Stockton four or five full feet to get this jumper off. Like, I almost think John Stockton might have been thrown off by how open he was. Like, the defense by Pete Chilcutt on this possession was inexplicable. Like, just based on the time, even if it's Greg Ostertag, you should be up on him, right? Like, John Stockton's got a stroke. But just knowing the time, you cannot be giving him the corner and giving him that airspace to get off that jumper. He's also, it's not like, you know, modern NBA, you might be like, well, this action is happening like 33 feet from the bucket. And okay, maybe I leave off for a little bit because from that distance, that's still a tough shot. He's well within the three pointer line. This is just a 20 foot jump shot that's close to the free throw line. And you almost look at Stockton stop for a beat and sort of go, wait, I'm this open? This early? I thought this was going to take a couple more seconds and go right to the buzzer. And then he just sort of shrugs and goes, all right, and shoots it. It is pure as money. But 
because again, this play takes much shorter than uh, the Jazz are probably anticipating. The Grizzlies do get the ball left with 2.3 seconds. They have a timeout. They can figure out a pretty good play that could happen here. Maybe something that involves uh, Sharif because he's doing so well in this game and he has the hot hand. Maybe something with Sam Mack because he's feeling it as well and you can stretch the court a little bit. There's lots of options available for the Grizzlies on this final play. Again, what do they do, Jeremy? Okay, of... <laughs> I don't... I can't... <laughs> of You're all so the angry. plays... Of all the mind-numbing, painful plays that I've seen through re-watching these games over the past couple of years, this one is the one that possibly flummoxes me the most. I do not understand what was meant to happen. So I can tell you how it was drawn up or how how the players were situated when this all took place. So um, Antonio Daniels, with his great... Uh, reservoir of experience and uh, poise has the ball out on the uh, left side side out we've got Pete Chilcutt in the far corner um, I guess he would be a threat for a, a long inbound pass to a corner three and big country and reef are in a very kind of odd spot they're side by side kind of foul line extended or like right around the elbow but outside the three-point line blue Edwards We've barely mentioned him. He hit that one J in the fourth quarter, and we talked about how he's eaten into Anthony Peeler's minutes. Blue Edwards is fighting for position in the post? And not even in a good position. He's just, he's he's one-on-one there with Hornacek back to the basket with about, you know, 13, 14 feet away. Uh, and you might think this is like a decoy thing just to keep them honest. And it seems with Reef and Country that maybe there's supposed to be some sort of action. Maybe it's a double screen for Chilcut to go around. Maybe it's one where they just try and split off and it's up to AD to go, okay, see the guy who got the quick cut and get it into them. You wouldn't think that with the game on the line, you would go to Blue Edwards, Raggedy Blue Edwards, on his last legs, Blue Edwards. One for four in this game, Blue Edwards, to try and win the game. Midcourt, here we go. Daniels looks. He'll lob it. Picked off a one second. It's over. It's over. Game is over to Jazz with it. Wow, that wasn't anyone near Jeff one second. They threw it right in his hands. So, the Jazz get out of here with a win. And a yeah, so the, like, I still, I genuinely don't know what this was supposed to be because... Country and Reef kind of come charging in side by side. And Antonio Daniels pretty much never looks at them. You can tell he's transfixed on Blue Edwards, struggling for this like 14 foot from the basket post-up spot, which is not his spot. He has no business being there. My only thought is that this is like a double pin down for Blue, who will then come up as a decoy and then Sharif seals the screened player and then just like tries for a turnaround or tries for like a fall away hook or something, but nothing like that transpires in any way whatsoever. And Antonio Daniels, even with the terrible decision throws a laughable pass, like seven feet over blue Edwards head. Jeff Hornacek just grabs it casually and that's the game. And you should see Sharif Abdul Rahim's face. 
He is not happy. It seemed like Daniels thought that uh, Blue was going to cut one way, and instead he cut it the other. I'm trying to be as charitable as possible because these are grown men who had a timeout and were trying to execute something that they have done in their lives hundreds of times, but it is just a boxed play at the end of the game as possible. It makes it so anticlimactic because the fans are so pumped. The Grizzlies have made their last seven shots. They're up against one of the best teams in the NBA. You can feel the excitement and then they don't, they get nothing. And it's not even like a chance for to, to for Blue to get the ball. And what's the result, even if he gets it though? Like that's what I don't like. It's gonna be like an MJ fade, forty five degrees with a hand in the face. Like I guess that's like what a, that's a twenty percent shot, a twenty five percent shot. Wouldn't you rather just give it to Sharif at the top, one dribble to a runner, or one dribble try and get fouled? Like I just don't. There's no part of me that wants Blue Edwards touching the ball in that last... Like, I know he hit that winner in the first season against the 76ers. <laughs> That's what they're hoping for Magic I guess, again. but, like, of all the guys on the court, I would prefer it not to have gone to him, and I'd prefer him to not to be on the court. Like, clearly he has this kind of, like, bombast in these moments where he thinks, like, this is me, I'm him, and no, Blue, you're not. And, and I just no. wish... I just wish with the game that Sharif had that he would have had that opportunity to put the team on his back and decide whether they won or lost. And then just nothing happened, you know, it, in, instead it is intercepted. The fans go silent. The Utah jazz win this game 89 to 88. Once again, the Grizzlies managed to snatch defeat from the potential jaws of victory. It's three stars time. Jeremy. I mean, for me, it's pretty straightforward. I've got John Stockton. He had worse numbers than Carl Malone, but if you watch that game, you know that's the John Stockton game. They won the game because of John Stockton. So John Stockton, number one, Carl Malone, number two, and then Sharif Abdurrahim, number three, 31 points, 10 rebounds, four assists, three blocks, two steals, 14 for 23. Should have had that chance for a turnaround game winner that could have, you know, Built a little bit more of his legacy here in Vancouver, but didn't wasn't given the chance. But uh, Sharif, easily the third star there for me. You know, I'm going to be the sentimental homer pick here and give Sharif the first star because no, they did not win the game <laughs> because we got to mix it up. But did the Grizzlies win the game? No, but Sharif again. 14 for 23 from the field, 40 minutes of action, going one-on-one -on -one with the Carl Malone, possession by possession, in the fourth quarter, and besting him. Like, that was cool to watch. That showed you why the team was so sold, that he could be a cornerstone player for them, and that you could build a playoff team around what he was able to do. And then, yeah, second and third star, the, the numbers don't show it, but again, like, the way that Stockton just dominate it the court when he was on there particularly in the fourth quarter got to give him the second star and Malone you know this is one of hundreds of games in his career where was he the flashiest player was he the most dominant player out there no but then you look at that stat line at the end 12 for 25 26 points 13 rebounds four assists as well the mailman delivered again and again and again and for the Utah Jazz after a slow start to the season they after this win go on a tear a long winning streak they end up winning 40 of their final 50 games of the season and of course make it all the way to game
Game 6 of the NBA Finals. When something happens in the final 50 seconds of the game, it's not really well known, but you can YouTube it, I guess, if you dig really hard. The Vancouver Grizzlies, on the other hand, still look like they're going to be having a pretty good third season, a better third season than their second and first seasons. They're still just 10 and 19. They're on pace for a slightly competitive season. There seems to be forward momentum until there isn't. But that's a story for next episode. And with that... This has been with the second pick, Steve Francis. I'm Jeremy Allingham for Justin McElroy. We'll be back next time for a special Grizz tilt when they take on... The Boston Celtics and Big Country Runs Wild. Ooh, Big Country Runs Wild against the Celts. Can't wait to see that. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next time with more Grizz action. See you then.